Bibles now, and if you would, we'll open them to Revelation chapter 22, and we're continuing this evening in our study of verses 12 through 17, which I've entitled, The Final Invitation. I know you're quite familiar with these verses by now. We've read them four times previously, but I'm working my way down to verse 17, and I promise we are going to get there. And this is, in verse 17, the last invitation that we have in the Bible. And I think it's fitting that the last uh, book of the Bible should include this invitation. Uh, Revelation is not only the last book of the Bible, but it's the last words that God has spoken to man. And so we come down to the end of God's word, and he gives us another invitation. Of course, God still speaks to us today through the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us, uh, or leads and directs us in our Christian lives. He speaks through a preacher as he directs us to preach the Word of God. But God doesn't give any more revelation. This is the end of it. And when we get down to verse number 17, we'll talk a little bit more about that on that particular aspect of it. But these are the last words that God inspired for man to write, and included here is an invitation. On the entire Bible is the story of, of Jesus. It tells us about his purpose in in coming to this earth. God sent his own son to deliver us from our sins and to enable us to be restored to his fellowship. And that that thought itself is just grand. There's no way that you can get over that. Uh, This is the story of what God did for us. And it shows us how kind and compassionate, how considering, how loving, how merciful that God is, that he even considers the salvation of lost sinners. Now, sometimes in our doctrine, uh, we're accused of believing that God doesn't really desire the salvation of all. And some say there's no way that you can believe that. If you think that God has chosen some to salvation and not others, then you can't believe that God desires the salvation of all. Well, we talked a little bit about that in our Sunday school this morning, and and I I really don't think that I can probe the mind of God on this issue. I can't figure all of that out, but I know that it's very clear from reading Scripture that God does desire for people to be saved, and if his desire was any different from that, then he would desire that people would sin against him, and he would desire rebellion, and God doesn't desire rebellion. That would be incompatible with what we know of him in the Word. So a holy and righteous God can't desire sin, and so there has to be this will of desire in God in which he does desire the salvation of lost sinners. And I remind you of a couple of verses that we have in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, verse number 23 says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? And then in the 33rd chapter, verse 11, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And so with that attitude in God, we're not surprised at all that included in the last words that God would give to man that we would have for an invitation an invitation for sinners to turn from their wickedness and to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. So we're going to read these verses again, and we're going to get down and read the invitation again, but we're, actually, we're not actually going to get all the way down there again tonight. Instead, uh, I'm going to concentrate on verse number 16, and then I'm going to do that this week and next week, and then in a couple of weeks we'll get down and talk specifically about verse number 17. But if you'll look in verses, uh, verse number 12 in 
chapter 22. We'll read these once again. Jesus says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Let me just list for you the previous points of our outline that we've discussed thus far. In verse number 12, we talked about, and I'm just giving these for so you can fill out those blanks there, but uh, verse number 12, we talked about the reward of his coming. In verse number 13 is the reminder of his consuming presence. In verse number 14, the readiness of his people. In verse number 15, the rejected at his coming. So those are the subjects of the previous four messages. And there's a lot of material there, so I'm not going to back up tonight and go back over that again. If you haven't heard some of this and you want to know more, we do have uh, CDs that are available, or you can download these messages from our website. And while I'm on that subject, let me just mention I appreciate so much our sound people, Brother Steve and Brother Bob, for taking care of making sure these messages get recorded. And then uh, Brother Randy Christensen gets them all converted to MP3s and puts them on the web so people can listen to them. And from time to time, I get people that, that call me or they'll send me emails, and, they'll, and they're not from around here, but they say, I've listened to your messages on, uh, on your website. And so it's a wonderful thing that Berean Baptist Church has a ministry that can be heard anywhere in the world. So we do thank our, our brothers for taking care of that and seeing that that's done. But I want to call your attention here to verse number 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Now, except for verse number 17... I, I think that this might well be the most important verse that we have in this section. I think it's one of the most interesting verses. I think it's one of the most thrilling verses. Because here it speaks of salvation. It speaks of the deity of Christ. It speaks of the continuity of Scripture. It talks about God's program for the world. It speaks of the eternality of Christ. And it speaks of the hope of every Christian that we all have in Christ. Maybe you don't see all of that in that verse, but we're going to get to it and talk about some of those things that are found here. So there's a lot that's packed into this. And I do want to touch on some of those different aspects that I just mentioned in this message and in the one next week as well. So our subject this evening, point number five on your outline, what I want to talk to you about tonight is the regency of Christ. Now, since we've studied a great deal about the coming kingdom of the Lord... I think you might recognize why I call this the regency of Christ. Regency is the time of governing. It's the period of a monarch or a governor, a president, prime minister, or some official that rules over the people. And whenever you see David mentioned in a, in a scripture with Jesus, the same scripture, 
you know that there's going to be some connection to God's kingdom. And the thought of an everlasting kingdom is one that we find throughout Scripture. And it means that Jesus is the king that will never relinquish his reign. He never dies. He never stops ruling. And although this coming kingdom, when it comes to this earth, it's going to be here for a while, for a thousand years, and then uh, the kingdom here is actually going to end, yet there is a new heavens and a new earth that are coming, and Jesus will remain the king in the new heavens and the new earth. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 18 for just a moment here. And I want to show you something about Jesus' declaration of the kingdom. And this was just before the crucifixion of Jesus, and he was being interviewed by Pilate. And Pilate was trying to determine the charges that should be brought against him, some reason why that he was there and the people wanted him to be crucified. So we have this exchange between them in John chapter 18, beginning in verse number 33. It says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest, I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So there, Jesus gives a statement to us for his his purpose of coming into the world, becoming incarnate, being born as a man into the world, and this is it, that he might show that he is the king, that he is the ruler of his people and will be in an everlasting kingdom that will include everyone that believes the truth. Now, returning then to Revelation 22, this verse that we're looking at tonight shows us how people receive the kingdom. And we have it in two words at the beginning of verse number 16. And here are these two words. He says, I, Jesus. Now there, Jesus identifies himself. The speaker is identified. That's why you find it in red in a red letter Bible. I, Jesus. Now those two words tell us that Jesus is the Savior. Now I have four subtopics that I want to consider under this verse. And each of them is a sermon multiple sermons. So I'm going to go until my allotted time is up tonight, and then we'll take it up again next week and talk about some more of this. But the first of these words that we find here is, I, Jesus, he is the Savior. And that's spoken in just two simple words. Jesus is the name that was given to the Son of God when he became the incarnate Son of Mary. The angel Gabriel came to Joseph And this was before Jesus was born, and he explained to him that Mary was not pregnant because she had been unfaithful to him, but because she had been chosen by God, and that she had been impregnated by the Holy Spirit in order to give birth to a very special baby. And so when Gabriel spoke to Joseph, he said, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus." For he shall save his people from their sins. 
Now, the name Jesus is a very important name because the name actually means Jehovah saves. Or if you want to take it from the Hebrew, it means Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus came into the world to do this. He came in to this world in human flesh that he might become man so that he could identify with us and to be a man in order that he might live a perfect life. He became human so that he could earn righteousness that he could give to us. He became flesh so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He became a man in order that he might suffer for us. He became a man that he might die for us. And through his death, he would become our Savior. Now, it is the Savior that fulfills all the words of the prophecy that are spoken in this book. This is the Savior that speaks these words. And the reason that he's able to speak them is because he arose from the dead, because he ever lives. The Word of God says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so he's the Savior now that intercedes for his people. He deflects all the accusations that are made against us by Satan. And because of that continual intercession that we have of Jesus Christ in heaven, there's no possible way that any of us could ever lose our salvation. And so the word of God says, he shall save his people from their sins. And I wish that I had time to get into the specifics of that statement. He shall save his people from their sins because that's a declaration of intent. That is a a declaration that there is a peculiar, particular people that Jesus had in mind that he came to die for. He saves his people, and he doesn't save anyone else. But I'm going to leave that part of it alone for now. I've talked about that quite a bit in other messages. But I want to mention some things to you tonight that are really just so important, that are so lovely for every Christian to understand. He says, I, Jesus... That's important because he uses the name that was given to him at his birth. Do you know what that means? That means in heaven that Jesus is still using his same name. He uses that name that identifies him with us. You see what Jesus didn't do, he didn't go to heaven and just forget about us. He didn't go to heaven to be in his glory and to treat us as nothing but creatures that are subject to the capricious will of God. But rather, he went back into heaven and he looks on us as his children. When he says, I, Jesus, that means that, that we're dear to him, that he loves us and he'll never stop loving us. And so we have a relationship with him. We have a bond that is utterly unexplainable. This is really the mystery of the ages, that Jesus considers us and that in, in, in that heavenly body that he has, that he still uses that name that he received here on earth. And Christ becoming incarnate, that's far beyond our understanding. The unbelieving Jews never got that. The, the Greek philosophers never understood that. And if you want to know the absolute truth, we don't really understand it either. We believe it. It happened. And we accept what the Bible says about it being true, but there's no way that we could possibly fully understand God being in a body. And yet that's what Jesus did. And perhaps an even greater mystery is that Jesus, after having gone through all the cruel sufferings that are inflicted upon him by man, has chosen to memorialize that experience in his own body in heaven and by keeping that same human appellation. That just blows my mind away. 
That sounds to me like something, if ever anybody had wanted to forget about, that would be it. Forget about the cross, forget about what happened to him, even be angry about it. But Jesus is not that way. He's chosen to memorialize what he did for us in heaven by keeping that name. And that's important to us because you remember when Jesus went away, when he went away in that body that was resurrected from the dead, the very same body that the disciples could come to and they could touch it. He said, you can put your fingers into my hands and feel those, feel where the nails went into my hands. In that same body, they watched him go up into heaven. And in that very same body, he said that he would return. Remember, we discussed this on Easter. He was ascending into heaven. And the angel said, "Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And so they recognized him as he went up. And folks, we're going to recognize him when he comes back again. When he descends to this earth, it will be the same Jesus. Now, there's a song that says, the only thing there, talking about heaven, the only thing there that's been made by man are the scars in the hands of Jesus. And I think that that's true. And I think that we'll recognize Jesus by his brilliance, certainly. He's the light of that city. But we'll also recognize him by the wounds that have been inflicted because of our sins. In the fifth chapter of Revelation, John writes, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And I think that's more than a fair indication that we'll never forget the reason why we're in heaven. That we can look over there at the Son of God, the one who saved us from our sins, and there is this constant reminder that he is the Lamb. That he's the Lamb that was slain for our sins, a Savior that, was, that died for us on the cross. So as the Word of God says, I, Jesus, he is the one that saves his people from their sins. And so that invitation that we find here in verse number 17, that still rings out throughout the world for every kindred, for every tribe, for every nation, that you can come to him, look to him, and be saved. Isaiah wrote, look unto me, recording the words of God, look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Now that brings me to the second observation about the verse. And the secondly, I want to say that Jesus is our God. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel. Now there's a verse that tells us that Jesus is deity. And I'm going to show you something else here in just a moment that shows us deity as well. But we see it here in this phrase, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel. Now, if you'll glance up to verse number 6 for just a moment, it says, And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the thing which must shortly be done. Now, do you see the correlation between those two verses? The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel. And now in verse number 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel. 
You know, sometimes theology is not really all that hard. Sometimes the truth just falls right into your lap. If you'll just read the scriptures as you should, read them together, you'll find some very clear statements. There is no way that anybody could deny that Jesus is Lord God of heaven and earth. I mean, how can anyone deny that, that he's eternal God when he's identified himself here so clearly? And yet there are false prophets and there are cults and there are deceivers that say he is not Jehovah God. The Jehovah Witnesses deny that. The Mormons deny that. And that's the reason we say that they're not Christians, because they do not believe what the Scriptures so clearly teach. Now, those are two of the fastest-growing religions in the world. You know, we're, we're in danger, and I call it danger. We are in danger now of electing a Mormon to the highest office in the land. Now, we have Mormons in our government at present, and to me, I think that they're more dangerous to Christianity than a Muslim ever thought about being. Satan doesn't spend time with Muslims. He's got those people. He doesn't, he's not too concerned about that. But the apostles and the writers of the New Testament were very concerned about this issue. James and Jude and the others, they weren't concerned about the Greeks and their strange ideas of mythology. That wasn't too dangerous to the church. What was the greatest threat to the church was a false Christianity. The worst threat to Christianity is those that claim to be Christians and yet they deny who Jesus Christ really is. And that's why we see all of these repeated warnings in Scripture. It tells us to watch out for false prophets because what they do is they infiltrate churches and they bring in their damnable heresies. And so perversion of Christian doctrine is far more serious than outside threats far more serious than Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or all of that, all those false religions, where we need to concern ourselves is with the perversion of the gospel. And so what we'll do is we're going to oppose that wherever we find it. And that's why our church doesn't join the National Council of Churches. It's why we don't uh, join up with the World Council of Churches. It's why we're not ecumenical. It's why we don't seek to have an accord with the Roman Catholic Church nor with anyone else who perverts the gospel of Christ. And so if that makes us loners, and that makes us pariahs in the community, then so be it. Because what I would do, folks, rather do is to stand with God than I would to fall with the world. And then there's a second phrase in this verse that confirms the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, there were two words that told us that he is the Savior, I, Jesus, And we have two words that tell us that he's God. And these come at the beginning of the second sentence where he says, I am. Now, if there are two more powerful words in the scripture, I don't know what they are. I am. That is an expression of the eternality of God. Five times in Revelation, Jesus used those two words. I'd like you to turn back to the first chapter for just a minute. And here we find two of the most powerful verses of Scripture that are in the Bible. And just another place where we can find out who Jesus Christ really is, that there is no mistaking that he is God. Revelation 1 verse number 8 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1.17 says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, 
I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Those two verses are unequivocal about the eternality of Jesus Christ. He says, I am the one which is, I am the one which was, I am the one which is to come, the Almighty. And so what we find there is past, present, and future that converge in the eternal present in Jesus Christ. He has no beginning. He has no ending. And so all these tenses are brought together, and he says, I am the Lord which is, which was, and which is to come. And of course, you know that we can take that and we can tie it back into the Old Testament where Moses met God at the burning bush. And remember how that God spoke to Moses and told him that he needed to go talk to Pharaoh. He needed to go talk to the children of Israel and tell them what they must do. And and Moses said, well, what am I going to say to them? What will I tell them? In Exodus 3.13, Behold, when I come, Moses said, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you. And they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And there's a great answer to that question. Listen to what God's reply is in the 14th verse. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. So he says, Forever my name is I am. And those are the words that we find Jesus speaking in Revelation 22. I am. And he used those words multiple times as a description of him. Just a few examples. When he was talking about his identity, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the... I am in the Father, and the Father in me. I am the true vine. I am Alpha and Omega. I am first and last. I am he that searcheth the reins and the heart. I am he that liveth. I am he that is alive forevermore. And then here in our text, I am the root and the offspring of David. And so that sounds like to me that Jesus identifies himself as God and he does this so many times that you either have to call him the biggest liar that ever lived or you have to admit that he's God of very God because that's what he claims to be. You know, if I was a Mormon, the first thing that I would do is drop the name of Jesus Christ from my church because according to their doctrine, they affirm that he is the biggest liar that ever lived. I mean, why, why would you want the name of a deceiver on your church? If they're not going to believe who he says that he is, then just get rid of the name. Why, why would you want to give him credit for anything if you don't believe that he says who he is? And so th- these people, Mormons, and I hate to maybe spend so much time on them, but, but, but God has them pegged just like he did the unbelieving Jews. 
Now, if you'll turn over to John chapter 8, we can read this where Jesus nails down what he thinks about anybody that doesn't believe that he is Jehovah God who is Lord of heaven and earth. This is not a, not a matter that you can just pass over and say it doesn't make any difference. What does he say to those who deny that he is the only one true God? Well, John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word, you or ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Now pay attention to that, because verse 47 relates us back to verse number 43. He says, why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? And down there in verse number 47, he claims to be speaking God's words. So what does that make him? That makes him God, doesn't it? That's a pretty simple conclusion, I would think, no matter how anybody looks at that. And so do you know why I despise the thought of a Mormon in the White House? It's because they're deceivers. They use the name of Jesus Christ, and at the same time, they have a doctrine that calls him the worst liar that ever lived. To me, that makes them dangerous people. Now, of course, I'm not speaking of hatred for Mormons. Mormons are nice people. They have nice families. They have good principles. They're good citizens. They make good neighbors. They wear nice white shirts and black pants and have cool bicycles that they ride around on. Uh, They're philanthropic. Some of the most zealous people that you'll ever meet, far more zealous than most of us that have the truth. So on a personal level, we don't have any hatred towards them, certainly not. But the subtlety of their religion makes it that much more insidious because they're accepted as Christians with the utmost felicity in their deceit. That is a huge problem. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, and that makes that religion terribly dangerous. Now, let me just tie what I've said thus far into this invitation that we have in verse number 17. As I said, we're getting there, but let's think about this for just a moment. When you see an invitation in the Bible, who is it that we're invited to come to? Who who are we invited to come to? Are we asked to come to an angel? Are we asked to come to some created being? Are we asked to come to a man? No, we're invited to come to God, aren't we? I, Jesus, have sent mine angel, the spirit and the bride, say come. When we have an invitation in the Bible, we are invited to come to God himself. And that God is our Savior. And if he's anything less than that, then he simply will not do. See, if Jesus is not God, then his death on the cross can't be an atoning sacrifice. If he's not God, then he can't bear infinite suffering for infinite justice. If he's not God, he could never rise under his own power. And if he's not God, he could never live forevermore. So if he's not God, folks, that tells us there is no salvation. 
And did you know this? Even if there could be salvation in Christ if he wasn't God, that you'd have no guarantee that you would be saved forever. You know why that's true? There's a lot of reasons for it, but think about this in relation to what Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and others believe, that if he's not truly God and yet he is the Savior, then what, what relationship does he hold to God? Now, the Mormons, for instance, believe that he is a created being. What is Satan? He's a created being, isn't he? And what happened to Satan? He was in the beginning with God, the, the anointed cherub that covereth the highest angel in, in all the, of all the angels of God, and yet Satan fell. And so if Jesus Christ was created as Satan was created, you know what that means? We have no guarantee that he's not going to have a falling out with God either. And at some point that he will fall also. And if he falls, what happens to your salvation? He has to be God. He upholds everything by his hands. He holds our salvation so it's secure. So the last invitation that we have in the Bible is not offered by a creature. It's offered by the eternal God, the one who has power and authority over all and who accomplishes all things after the power of his own will. Now, folks, we're going to stand on these truths. We're not going to let this go. These are faithful and true words of Scripture. And I say it like the song. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. The word of God says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Folks, I know this. He is my Savior, and he is my God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what we've looked at in your word tonight. And it's so good to come back sometimes and just think about who you are and what you've done for us. We are so small and so insignificant. We're not worth the time of day for a God like you. But we thank you that you loved us, that you sent Jesus into the world to die for us, and that when he came, he offered himself as the eternal God of this entire universe to die for our sins. And we thank you for that, Lord. There's just no way that we can fathom all of that or ever hope to repay such a, such a grandiose demonstration of love. Lord, we thank you for it. And help us to always remember who you are and to serve you for who you are our Savior, and our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.